The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So for the last um, few weeks that I was here, a few weeks ago, I was um, talking about mindfulness. And mindfulness in the context of the, the Noble Eightfold Path. Mindfulness, I think, is a key in the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path being um, essentially the set of tools, the set of practices that the Buddha offered us to um, free our minds to actually begin to recognize what it is that catches our minds. I guess I'd put it that way first, that that we, uh, using the Eightfold Path, the first thing we start to see is how our minds contribute to our struggles, our suffering. And through that seeing of how our minds contribute to our difficulties, the mind begins to understand and learn its way to letting go of those patterns and habits that we have that contribute to the ways we feel distress, dissatisfaction, unease, struggle, suffering, all those different words that can be used to translate the Pali term dukkha. So when we use the word suffering, you know, often that word has a particular connotation to us and it it often um, is associated with things that lead to physical pain. You know, if we're suffering, sometimes we may think we're suffering if we have pain from an illness or, um, you know, kind of physical, emotional pain from a loss, that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the physical pain itself is not the distress, the dissatisfaction, the unease that the Buddha pointed to that we could become free of. That may sound a little depressing, but, um, you know, the the... The understanding is that our bodies, I mean, if you just look at the way our bodies function, right? You know, our bodies are designed to produce pain when they get damaged. You know, that's part of, uh, you know, being human. Our bodies are designed to produce physical pain so that we know we need, we have something to take care of. Um, And actually, an understanding I have is that the people who have Hansen's disease, which is um, what leprosy is now called, Hansen's disease, they've lost the... A pain sensitivity in their body and because of that their body wears away and so pain serves a function for us physical pain serves a function for us and that kind of thing physical pain isn't going to go away through a mental training but when we start looking at our experience and looking through the practices of the Eightfold Path when we start looking at Uh, what goes on in our minds and our bodies, we see that there are these feedback loops. That when there is physical pain, the mind gets upset and distressed. And there's a tightening in the mind that then feeds back into the body and we contract in the body, which then can lead to more distress in the mind. And it's this, you know, it's a positive feedback loop that just intensifies our um, experience of distress when we have physical pain. And that feedback loop, the, uh, the mental distress that comes around physical pain, 
the Buddha is, that's what the Buddha pointed to. This can go away, this mental distress. And that same reactivity to events in the world that we have distress over, um, loss of loved ones and um, fear, uh, anxiety, worry, that also um, we begin to see as we explore our experience with wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, this, this aspect of the Eightfold Path that points to mental development, cultivating and training our minds, we begin to see how it's, it's, a, it's a tightening, it's a contracting, it's a resisting, it's a pushing, it's a um, holding that um, creates the distress around those events. And that there's a way that our hearts can be open and meet all of the events of the world. That our hearts can respond not with fear, anxiety, depression, frustration, anger, hatred, confusion, but with compassion, with kindness, with joy when there is beauty in the world, and with balance of mind that allows the mind to to be responsive rather than reactive. And so this is what the Buddha pointed to, the Eightfold Path is, first it exposes in our minds the ways that we contract and cling, and then it helps us to begin to let go of that and lead us to this more responsive, open heart, instead of the contracted, clinging, closed heart. So um, I'd like to talk today about how mindfulness fits in to this path, to this practice, and I've been talking about mindfulness from a different, couple different perspectives for the last few weeks. Um, one aspect I brought in is that, um, you know, the definition of mindfulness, the, what we, you know, the, a, a way to think about mindfulness is to be aware, attentive of what's happening in the present moment. And that's one way that uh, it is defined, attentiveness directed to the present moment. That, that aspect of attending to the present moment is what we generally think of as mindfulness, but the Buddha pointed to, well, there are wise ways to, the, to attend to the, met, the present moment, and perhaps some not-so-wise ways to attend to the present moment. So, for instance, if you, know, if you just think about... Um, before you began looking at your experience, before you began a meditation practice, or, um, or think about friends who don't know anything about meditation practice, if you um, ask them, be attentive to uh, anger. You know, be attentive to anger. You know, pay attention to anger. Without any other guidance or instructions. Often, I think, um, it would lead to an increase in that anger. Because when we pay attention to anger, we're often caught in thinking about what, what we're angry about. And that is what we think it means to pay attention to anger, is to 
to pay attention to the thoughts. And so that just that simple, you know, be attentive in the present moment isn't quite enough to guide us towards this uh, wisdom that the Buddha is pointing to, this letting go of reactivity. And so the, the wisdom needs to be joined with this attentiveness in the present moment, some understanding of what it helps to be attentive to, or, or maybe not so much what to be attentive to, but how to be attentive, how to bring attention to the present moment. And this is actually, I, I look at the, this as being a, a key part of what the Buddha taught and explored. How do we pay attention to the present moment? Not just being attentive, but how to be attentive so that it helps us to understand our minds. If we're simply um, you know, thinking about noticing in the present moment our thoughts, being involved in our thoughts, which is... You know, what I thought of, you know, if I pay attention to my anger before I really understood what it meant to be attentive to anger in the present moment. Um, If I um, did that, it would have meant I would have been thinking about what I was angry about. And that brings more anger. So um, this mindfulness practice, this attentiveness in the present moment needs to be supported by some wisdom, some uh, teaching, some help in understanding how to be attentive. The classic definition of wise mindfulness, of right mindfulness, of the Noble Eightfold Path, sometimes the Pali is samasati, which sama is usually or often translated as meaning right. Um, but, you know, it could also mean wise. And wise, I think, is a, is a word. Is, with right, the word right in our language uh, often has a... It's right as opposed to wrong, often, and, um, or good as opposed to bad. And this is more about what's skillful, what's helpful for us in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and, and could you use the mic? Oh, the, your mic wasn't on? His, oh, okay. Uh, I was, is it on now? It, it sounds like it. Okay. Does it? Uh, I was just going to mention that in older English usage, uh, right means uh, properly aligned. So uh, what he said is that right means properly aligned. And it's the, is the green... In, in older... Is, is the green light on? On the side? Uh, no. Oh, there... Push the switch. Yeah, I was just going to say in older English usage, uh, right can mean uh, properly aligned or adjusted. Yeah, uh, and, and that's more the definition word. that we're looking at in terms of, you know, some, a, a, a kind of the proper alignment. You can just put it on the floor. A proper alignment with what we're trying to accomplish. That's kind of the notion of this 
right mindfulness here. And so the, um, the classic definition is in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness. And I'll just name them right now. And then today I'm just going to kind of briefly overview these four foundations of mindfulness. And then at the end of the class today, I'll check in with you and see how much detail do you want to go into over the next few weeks uh, on this uh, topic. Um, So the um, four foundations of mindfulness are body, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling, where feeling is not emotion per se, but of a simpler aspect of experience, just of whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. The third foundation is attending to the state of our mind. Is it contracted? Is it, is it um, easeful? Is it, does it have anger? Does it have aversion? Does it, is it, does it have non-aversion? So just this kind of the state of our mind. What, what, is the, you know, what is the climate of our mind, essentially? And the fourth, a little more complicated to explain, but I'll just simply call it right now, um, mindfulness of... Um, the, the, I'll use the Pali. It's mindfulness of Dhamma. And um, Dhamma has a couple of different definitions, and I think they both come together here. Dhamma means experience, it means just simple, everything that it happens to us, every, every sense contact, every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every thought, every emotion, they're all called dhamma. They're dhammas. They're experiences. So what happens to us is dhammas. And then the, the term has some other meanings. One is, that I, I think is kind of related to that sense of the experience of the moment. I mean, Dhamma the, is, means the experience of the moment. Um, and the, another definition or way to look at the term Dhamma is as the truth of what is happening. The truth of the present moment. And the third definition of Dhamma is the teaching of the Buddha. The um, the set of tools, the set of practices, the set of teachings that he offered to help us to be able to see this truth of our experience. You know, what is actually happening in our experience. So much of um, what is actually happening in our experience is obscured by thoughts, ideas, views, opinions, filters, essentially, on our mind. And so the... Um, the practices that the Buddha offers help us to come to understand how those filters, views, opinions, beliefs impact those experiences. And so this fourth foundation of mindfulness is uh, an exploration of experience, of all experience, through the framework of the Buddha's understanding. So in the fourth foundation, he asks us to explore our experience through the framework of specific teachings. So explore your experience through the framework of the five hindrances, for instance. The, the, uh, 
five qualities of mind that kind of get in our way and keep us distracted, unable to settle in concentration. He says, just look at your experience from that perspective. See when those are present, when those are absent. What happens when they're absent? What conditions them to arise? And he goes on with other kinds of perspectives, Dharma perspectives that we can look at our experience through. So that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So the um, term for the four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana, is the Pali. And sati, the first part of that term, means mindfulness, uh, basically mindfulness. It also has a connotation of memory. It is connected, the, the word, the root of the word sati is connected to remembering memory. And uh, my, one of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, points to this a lot. And he says, you know, mindfulness is just about remembering yourself. Just remembering yourself. And this teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness in, indicates it's, you know, it's not just about remembering yourself as an, as an identity, but remembering all of these different aspects of experience, being present for body, feeling, mind states, and for, for this perspective of the Dharma. So the um, first part of the term, satipatthana, means mindfulness. And the second part, the, uh, ap- the atana part, satipatthana, the patana part, um, has a couple different ways that it's understood. And often, uh, the, often it's translated as foundation. And that leads us to kind of the sense that these are four things that we're supposed to pay attention to. We're supposed to pay attention to our body. We're supposed to pay attention to our feelings. We're supposed to pay attention to our mind states. We're supposed to pay attention to our experience, these Dhamma experiences through, um, you know, our hindrances, our, that kind of thing. And that's, that's a way that is very useful to understand, essentially, that the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness describes what we are supposed to pay attention to, the objects of our mindfulness. That's one way to look at this training that the Buddha offered. And another um, perspective of that last half of that term, the patana half, is that it means something more like... um, establishment, uh, setting up of. And that um, lends a little bit more connotation to the sense of, it, not that, that this, the descriptions that are offered in the, about paying attention to the body isn't so much about what we pay attention to as how we pay attention. How do we establish mindfulness? How do we set up mindfulness? So it's not so much the, the what we pay attention to that's important as how we bring our attention. And I think both. You know, the Buddha actually was um, a master of language. He used uh, 
wordplay a lot. He used words that had subtle shadings of meaning a lot. And perhaps, I haven't seen anything that, that says this, but perhaps this is another one of those cases where he's pointing to these are both you know, things to pay attention to and how to pay attention. Another, um, so they could, this could be instead of the, the four foundations of mindfulness, which sounds like a thing, we're, you know, it's a thing that we're setting mindfulness on. It could be the four establishments of mindfulness. Uh, another translation that I particularly like for this is the four frames of reference. This comes from um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, I think probably through his Thai teachers his Thai forest uh, lineage, that, that they, um, the, the four foundations of mindfulness could be thought of as different views or different perspectives on experience. And I like this particularly as a way of thinking about these um, aspects of experience because it brings to mind that in our experience, there's always stuff happening, right? There's always body experience happening, mental experience happening. There's always stuff happening. And um, these frames of reference aren't really... Um, it's kind of that, the, that if we look at the frame of reference of the body, we could, we could choose to attend to our experience through the perspective of looking at body experience. And in a particular way of looking at body experience, particular way of looking at just the contact of our senses. Not the idea of body. I mean, if we think about paying attention to our body, we might think about noticing that I have a hand, or noticing that I have a shoulder, or noticing that I have a pain in my stomach. And that layers some concept on top of the experience. And just right now, if you... Look at your hand and think about it as a hand, you know. It's that, that idea of hand. And then now just close your eyes and allow yourself to feel the experience of hand. And what is that experience? There's pulsing, tingling, vibration... And if you close your eyes, it can make it easier to to tap into that level of the physicality of hand. Creaking, perhaps, a little bit of popping as the joints move. Coolness or pressure. Many different sensations. And now open your eyes again and look at your hand and think about it as hand. This is a hand, and what hands do for me? It allows me to reach. It allows me to pick things up. For me, when I make that switch to thinking about it as hand, I no longer feel the sensations quite so clearly. I still have some access to the sensations, but not that real close sense. So the, the foundation of mindfulness is pointing us to, the body foundation is pointing us to, coming into contact with the actual physicality of experience and not filtered through our ideas or concepts of 
our body. So we can look at our experience. You know, what's, whatever's happening in our experience, we, we might choose to look at it from this perspective or reference of the body. Or the same thing that's happening, whatever is happening. I mean, there may be, um, you know, at a particular moment, there's also feeling happening in our bodies. You know, that's those same sensations of hand. You know, maybe some of them are pleasant, some of them are unpleasant. Coolness, the coldness of, of the hand. Maybe there's a slight unpleasantness to that. The tingling, the vibration, there may be a slight pleasantness to that. So the same experience can be looked at from another perspective. And then there's always mental experience going on. You know, there's always um, ideas, uh, a kind of a climate in our mind. If we're calm or relaxed, that, that climate Im- impacts our experience. If we're agitated or in distress, that climate of the mind impacts our experience. And so we can attune ourselves to notice our experience from this frame of reference, from this, from this um, perspective. So I, I also like to think about the uh, four foundations of mindfulness, the four frames of reference, as being different kind of views, different lenses that we can look at our experience through. It's not um, that we're uh, saying anything is outside of the realm of what we can be attentive to. Like even those thoughts that I talked about before, those thoughts of of anger, if we pay attention to them with respect to the content of those thoughts, if we're kind of drawn into the content of those thoughts, then they'll tend to reinforce an anger cycle. But if we simply notice them as there's a thought, There's a thought arising in my mind right now. How is that thought arising in my mind right now? It sounds like I'm talking to myself. Or I'm seeing an image in my mind. If we start paying attention to the process of thinking instead of the content of thinking, it's a completely different relationship to thought. Yeah, another question. I've caught myself uh, thinking about you know, the content of my anger. The, I call it the content of my contentiousness. But uh, I sometimes find uh, that there's just a certain element of fantasy mixed with reality in it. And then I find that when I can sift that out, uh, it helps me to sort of take, a, take it apart. Uh-huh. Okay. So that, that's, there, there are some useful tools, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of creating a simplistic version right now um, of you know, what it means to pay attention to thoughts. There's also definitely some help. It can be helpful, depending on what's going on, to pay attention to aspects of the content. Uh, like you say, I mean, to notice what parts of this are, are, are reality and what parts of it are my uh, add-on. What's the add-on here? I remember um, before I met the practice, I found myself getting angry at my, um, my partner. And um, I would get really whipped up into anger about something that I had imagined that he might do someday. 
<laughs> and, you know, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is, there's also a, a, a saying something like, um, you know, somebody on their deathbed looking back at their life and, and realizing that there's so many um, awful things that happened, uh, those awful experiences, none of which ever happened, you know. Um, something like that, you know. That, that That's a lot of what our minds do. And so beginning to recognize that, beginning to recognize how the mind does that constructing is part of this exploration also. Um, so that's, again, you know, it's... Rather than being caught in the, I mean, you're, you, you're, you're noticing the content of the thought, but recognizing the content itself as conditioned, as constructed, as opposed to, you know, what's actually happening. So that's, that's another aspect of how the, the mindfulness helps us. So um, I'd like to talk briefly about each of these foundations. Um, and how they support our understanding of this uh, struggle. The way, our, the way our minds contribute to distress, dissatisfaction, unease, struggle, stress, uh, suffering. So the first foundation, the foundation of mindfulness of the body... This, the first thing that this does, I mean, I think the, the Buddha put this as a very first place to begin to explore mindfulness with some wisdom because the body's pretty obvious, you know. It's a pretty easy place to begin noticing what's happening, you know. You can do a few simple exercises like I pointed to with the hand and begin to get a sense of the difference between attending to actual physical experience and what the difference is when there's mind or mental ideas involved. And so the exploration of body, of body experience, begins to point out to us just, first of all, just how intertwined mind and body are, how much feedback there is between the two, and it helps us also begin to kind of tease apart what is mental and what is physical? The body itself doesn't react to things. Well, there's a little bit of that. I mean, if you, if you, you know, tap the, the, the nerve on the knee, the, 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 the body's going to jerk. Um, you know, that, what is that? The, the reflex, the reflex action. Um, but the, the, the mind, the, the struggle, the suffering of the mind we begin to see just how intertwined body and mind are. Um, so it's, it's really a pointer, it's a beginning pointer to see how much of our experience, how much of what we call our experience, is mental as we start paying attention to the body. As we start to recognize what actually is body, what actually is... There's not actually a lot... There's, there's sight, there's sound, there's smell, there's taste, all of the different sensations that come together. And, you know, taste is a good one to, to reflect on. You know, they've done some research, you know, long uh, history of research on study with taste, that um, 
you know, the taste has like six different things, different, different aspects to it, right? So there's bitter, there's sweet, there's salty, there's um, pungent, you know, so there's just these tastes that are on the tongue. So the tongue doesn't taste orange, for example. The tongue doesn't taste chocolate. It, it tastes all the different combinations of bitter, sweet, salty, etc. And then the mind puts together orange or chocolate. And you can actually start to see that in meditation. It's a kind of an interesting uh, thing. For me, that takes a pretty quiet mind to start to recognize as you bite into orange, a little burst of sweet, a little burst of tart, a little, you know, and, and then all the other sensations around, for instance, um, you know, the liquidity, the coolness, all of that. So the, um, the, the sensations are, are, are pretty, you know, they're like these building blocks, the sensations of our body. There's this, the, the, the tongue has its receptors. The eye has its color and form receptors. Uh, the ear has pitch and tone receptors. You know, the ear doesn't hear motorcycle or train. The ear hears pitch and tone. And then the, the mind turns it into train or motorcycle or bird or laughter, whatever it is. So the body, you know, the body doesn't uh, experience hand. The body experiences vibration, tingling, hardness, pulsing, coolness, heat. The mind creates hand. So this exploration of body begins to point this out to us. We begin to see just how much of our experience is mental. So that's the mindfulness of the body just begins to point out to us what the actual physicality of experience is. Then there's a mindfulness of feeling, which has um, a couple different sides to it. I mean, first I'll talk about the feeling in the body, because this is the easiest place, actually, to begin to touch into this exploration, this reference, this frame of reference of feeling, is in body experience. So right now, sitting here... Um, you know, what is the strongest experience that, that your physical experience that you're having? You know, is, the, is it maybe the pressure of your butt on the chair or cushion or bench or maybe the contact of your feet on the floor or maybe your hands? Some, what is the, the strongest physical experience that you're having right now? And then see if you can attune to whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or perhaps kind of neutral in the middle. This uh, aspect of feeling tone is present with every single moment of experience, every single physical experience, every single mental experience. In our bodies, it feels like the, the feeling often feels like it's a physical thing. But the understanding... And this is a little, a little challenging, perhaps. The understanding is that this feeling tone is actually mental. It's a construct of the mind. And I discovered not too long ago, I was reading a book um, uh, by a neurobiologist and, and was actually surprised to find that there's neurological, neurobiological evidence for the fact that this quality aspect of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is created in the mind. It's in the brainstem, apparently. It's right at the base 
of the, the brain. And if there's a damage to that part of the brain, that feeling of pleasant, unpleasant goes away. You know, so the, the, um, uh, the, the brain puts that together, that whether we're feeling pleasant or unpleasant. We can kind of begin to see this a little bit um, in seeing how a particular sensation may sometimes be pleasant in one context and sometimes be unpleasant in another context. So again, beginning to see how the climate of our mind impacts how we feel things, whether things are pleasant or unpleasant. So a, a, simple, um, simple, a simple example. Suppose you're, um, you've, you've agreed to meet a friend on a street corner in San Francisco, a busy street corner. You've agreed to meet, you know, just hang out on that street corner and wait to meet. And you arrive first, and you're standing there looking around, you know, kind of looking for your friend. And your friend comes up from behind you, so you don't see them approaching, and they touch you on the shoulder. Now you're expecting your friend, and so it may be that that sense of somebody touching you, you know, just a gentle touch, you know, your friend you know, would do that gently, you know, just it might be experienced as pleasant. But then envision, same street corner, same situation, same exact out, outer conditions, but you're not expecting a friend. And you feel somebody touching you on the shoulder. That might be startling. It might be cons- uh, experienced as unpleasant because of the context. So this experience of pleasant, unpleasant um, one of the explorations is beginning to understand how it's conditioned, how it's um, the process nature of feeling also, how it's impacted by the climate of our minds. This understanding of feeling also is very important in terms of understanding how reactivity comes to be. Because when we begin to explore feeling, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. We start to see that our reactivity, our aversion, our wanting to hold on is born out of this simple aspect of feeling. When things are unpleasant, we want to get rid of them. When things are pleasant, we want to keep them and hold them. And this is really kind of the, one of the cruxes of where our struggle comes to be. And so beginning to observe and recognize feeling is very important um, frame of reference to explore in our experience. Then the mindfulness of mind, of mind states. You know, the Buddha simplifies our mind states in this teaching. You know, he doesn't, he, he, he keeps it simple. He says, if there's aversion present, know that there's aversion present. If there's non-aversion present, if aversion is not present, notice that aversion is not present. If greed is present, notice that greed is present. If it's not present, notice that it's not present. He keeps it really simple. He's, he's got maybe eight or nine, I think, it's, I think it's eight different pairs that he explores in this uh, foundation. You know, aver- aversion, non-aversion, greed, non-greed, delusion, non-delusion, um, uh, distraction, contraction, um, concentrated, not concentrated, things like that. Now, it sounds like perhaps limiting, 
But I think he's really pointing to simplification. So, for instance, the experience of anger maybe has several threads to it. You know, there's distraction, there's contract, there, there may be um, there may be aversion, there's non-concentration. <laughs> you know, not concentration is not present, and we can just begin to recognize our. Um, our states of mind through simpler lenses. And again, I think this pulls us back from being involved in the story of. It's like, okay, yep, there's a version happening here. Yep, that's what's going on. It kind, of, it kind of helps us to simplify how we're attending to experience and uh, pulls us out of the details of what we're angry about, who we're angry at, at what the situation was, how we want to fix it, change it, correct it. Then this uh, last foundation, mindfulness of perspective through the perspective of of Dharma. Um, Essentially, when I look at this, the the way mostly to simplify this for me, to, to kind of put a broad context on it, is that the Buddha is encouraging us in this last one, this last foundation, to look at the cause and effect relationship between experiences. Notice what happens and how that leads to the next thing that happens. So, anger is present. And what's the consequence of that? You know, there's anger in the mind and that leads to a tensing and a tightening of the body, for instance. So noticing the cause and effect relationship. That As we begin to get familiar with exploring cause and effect in our minds, we start to uh, recognize, you know, a simple example, which I've told many times in this, in this group, you know, the arising of a thought the arising of a, of a memory about a situation. And the memory itself is just there. It's just neutral. And yet that memory itself then kind of pulls together all kinds of emotional context. A memory of being with somebody in a particular situation and then remembering all of your emotional connection to that person and then poof, an emotion is born. So remembering for myself, you know, remembering being at a fruit stand with my ex-boyfriend and then, boom, anger. You know, that, that just the, you know, the intention towards anger coming up. And as we start to see the cause and effect relationship, you know, when we see that, the mind begins to learn how to re-navigate those, those causal uh, chains. You know, it's not necessary that a particular emotion necessarily leads to a particular, emo- a particular memory leads to a particular emotional response. It's, it's a habit that it goes that way. This observation, the beginning to look at our experience in terms of cause and effect can begin to uh, help the mind see that it's a choice that the mind is making. In my own experience, seeing the memory and seeing the mind kind of heading into anger you know, to kind of wanting to jump on that thought and think more thoughts in order to get angry at that person. When I saw that, you know, the mind began to understand it didn't have to go there. 
It, it, I didn't even actually have to say, oh, don't go there. It's like the mind just let go of it, like, like it would let go of a hot pot. You know, if I touched a pot on the stove, you know, just the, the, the body automatically moves away from it because it knows that way lies burn, that way lies suffering. Similarly, in this situation, I had been observing anger enough in my experience that I felt the burn of anger. And when I saw, when the mind saw itself heading towards anger, it's like, oh, no, not going not gonna to burn myself there. And it began to let go of it. So this uh, exploration, this fourth foundation I look at is really an exploration of cause and effect, of relationship between experience. So in our exploration of mindfulness, the, um, the exploration I find to be just what's happening right now and how can I see it from these perspectives? The, the, these perspectives that the Buddha offers are perspectives of wisdom that help us to see our experience in a way that will lead us more towards well-being. So it's 11 now, so I need to stop. And I just want to check in with you. So I just did the, you know, kind of the watercolor effect, the impressionistic effect of the four foundations of mindfulness. And, um, you know, I was thinking it might be interesting to go into each one a little bit and give you a flavor of, you know, what does it mean? How do we, how do we look at each of these perspectives in mindfulness? And so I was thinking of doing that over the next few times when I'm here. Does that seem Okay. Okay. Okay, good. That's what I'll do. So I'm here next week, and then, you know, I'm, I'm here and gone, as you know. But um, um, So I'll just keep this going as I'm here. So I'll see you next week.